Scripture reading for the sermon today will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you don't have your own Bible and are using a pew Bible, the page number for the passage will be on 987, page 987. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because of our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. For we know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. I hope your Bibles aren't shut already. If they've accidentally closed, open them back up to the book of First Thessalonians. And uh, kids, I'll pass along a tip that I learned when I was younger. All of the T books in the New Testament are alphabetical and numerical, so they're in order. Um, so if you find yourself in a T book, uh, just go back to the TH and go back to the number one. It's a, I still use it to this day, so uh, you might laugh at me, but I, I need stuff like that. First Thessalonians, uh, and in keeping with the summer weather that we've enjoyed this week, uh, we're going to launch today into a summer sermon series. I'm already in my summer preaching gear, and um, I think it's appropriate that uh, we would begin a new sermon series that will take us the next few months, and interspersed in all of that will be opportunities to hear from uh, some of our other favorite preachers. Um, we had Reed last week, which is always a joy, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing from Ed Moore in a couple of weeks, and then our own Logan Howard, again, Lord willing, on June 5th. Um, so we'll have some special things like that, but uh, we'll keep returning to this sermon series on the book of first, the books of first and second Thessalonians. And in my estimation, this is one of the, the most underrated portions of the New Testament. Uh, like, like a middle child, I guess, the the Thessalonians are often overlooked uh, with most of the attention going to, you know, the more dynamic letters. So if, the, if Thessalonians had a voice, it would probably sound like Jan Brady, and it would probably say something like, Romans, Romans, Romans. <laughs> but... The fact of the matter is that 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are actually the oldest siblings. 
you know, with the possible exception of Galatians, these letters are Paul's earliest. He, he wrote them not too long after he was there, visiting them in person, establishing that church, uh, which happened sometime, they think, in AD 51, during Paul's second missionary journey. And after Paul and his associates were forced out of Thessalonica, that's the name of the city, he was, he was desperate to learn how they were doing. He hated to have to leave them in that newborn, vulnerable kind of a condition. And as soon as it was safe, he sent Timothy back to check up on them, to, to help um, bring them into some knowledge of some important things. And then uh, Timothy returns to Paul, who by now is in Corinth, and Timothy is able to bring a very encouraging report about what was going on with the Thessalonian believers. And upon hearing that wonderful report, Paul wrote this letter to the church. And that's what we have that's come down to us. And one of the reasons I love these letters is how warm they are. Uh, Philippians gets all of the press, I think, for, for being the church that evokes, you know, Paul's affection and joy the most. But I don't know. I think it might be Thessalonians. So this is a great place, I think, for us to be, to kind of cultivate a, a heart for others. And these letters are also worth our attention because of how they center us once again on the gospel, which we always need. Um, since they contain words of instruction and encouragement to, to a congregation that's full of new converts, First and Second Thessalonians really, I think, serves as a helpful reset for us, uh, a 40-year-old congregation, which is what we are. And at this age, I think our church is susceptible to a, a sort of midlife crisis, if you will. You know, the temptation for a church like ours is going to pursue the things that are fresher and, and flashier. But what we actually need is to be reassured of and to be re-centered on the gospel, on the, on the power of the word of God when it's attended by the spirit of God. We need to be focused once more on the hope of Christ's return. And, and all of these things are, are going to be put before us time and time again in these pages. So... Uh, what we truly need, I think, in this midlife crisis of ours is to delight in the Christian life of our youth, if I could put it that way. And I think these letters to a young congregation will be just the ticket, if the Lord will be pleased to bless them. Now this morning we'll take for our passage the first ten verses uh, of this first chapter of this first letter. And not surprisingly, this opening section has has some standard features. It, it tells us uh, who the senders are. It tells us who the recipients are. There's a greeting. There's a thanksgiving and a note of prayer. And that's pretty standard stuff, actually, for a first century letter. But these are not just, you know, perfunctory points for Paul to include in his letter. Rather, this passage is just loaded with truth and with testimony that I think will be of great encouragement to us, as it was to the Thessalonians. In particular, it's going to chronicle for us what was their, 
we might call their birth of faith, the birth of faith. And the example of these early Christians really helps to answer the question, where exactly does faith come from? And what does genuine faith look like once it appears? I think, uh, I think it'll be helpful for us to consider the answers to those questions. My wife and I had very similar questions this week about the gorgeous flowers that are popping up in our flower beds. Flowers, by the way, that we didn't plant, you know, but they pop up every year and they just blow us away with how beautiful they are. And the other day when we were drinking coffee and looking out, we, we just looked at each other and we were like, how? It's, it, we were flabbergasted just by the mechanics of the whole thing, but also by the beauty of it. And like, how does that even happen? So I've been thinking a lot this week about flowers, and I've also been meditating on this passage. So it kind of what you get today is kind of a mashup of those two things. And I, it struck me that maybe the idea of a flower or a plant might be a helpful way for us to work our way through the passage and understand the details of what was going on with the Thessalonians and what takes place with the, the birth of their faith. And I think, I think the analogy of a flower can really help. And we're already kind of familiar with that analogy, with thinking about that as a me metaphor. We speak, for example, of church plants, right? And that's a metaphor. Uh, we we um, speak about the, the idea of a plant to think about the birth of a, a new church and a group of people's faith. Now, I'll just warn you, we'll get into trouble if we, like, push this analogy too far. So uh, don't do that, and try not to let me do that. But we will take it as far as we can in order to better understand this passage. So uh, in the time that we have remaining, we'll look at five Ps, maybe four. Uh, we'll see how, how it goes. I may have to repackage these Ps, but these are... These are ideally five Ps that pertain in the first place to flowers or plants, but ultimately they pertain to faith. And let's look first at the petals, the petals. And I think that's a good place to start because that's what we notice first about flowers, right? The, the vibrant colors, the, the fragrant aromas, the, the first and best things that you notice about a flower have to do with the petals. And uh, personally, my favorite flower is a tulip. And whether or not that's purely for aesthetic reasons or if I'm a little biased, if there's some theological reasons creeping into that, I don't know. But what I do know is that I love tulips. And we've got some beautiful bright red ones and some nice yellow ones in front of our house. Now, technically, tulips have three petals, even though it looks like there's six. There, there's three uh, matching sepals that, that look like petals. But I want you to just keep that in mind as we jump into our passage in verse 2. Because in verse 2, Paul is telling the Thessalonians how thankful he is to the Lord for them, He's uh, letting them know that they are a constant topic of his prayers whenever he, uh, 
praise to the Lord. And then he continues. And I like that he continues here because it tells us that he's not content, as, as we often are, to give people just some vague generalities about what we're thankful for and uh, what we thank the Lord about in them. No, Paul is able to get very specific about why he is so thankful for these Thessalonian believers and what he finds so beautiful about them. So let's, let's look at it there in verse 3. It's their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. And if we boil this down just to the bare nouns, we're left with, if, if you uh, forgive the order, faith, hope, and love. And hopefully you recognize that as the, the beautiful and aromatic three-petaled flower that characterizes the fruitful Christian life. You know, this, this triad, this holy trinity of faith, hope, and love, these are classically called the theological virtues. And they're, they're designated that because they have their origin in God, and then they are in turn directed towards God. And these three, you may, you may instantly recognize that these three virtues appear together throughout the New Testament, most famously perhaps in 1 Corinthians 13, which, you know, with the summer ramping up, with wedding season ramping up, uh, this, these three will make a lot of appearances. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. You know, faith is that God-given capacity to believe his word and to trust in his promises without yet seeing them or without yet holding, holding them in your physical hands. Love is that outwardly oriented affection uh, that, that we have, which we were first the object of, and now we are the subjects of. In other words, if I could put it this way, we love because he first loved us. His love has been poured out into our hearts, and so now we're able to love both God and neighbor. The first and greatest commands. John Stott has pointed out how these three virtues pertain to time, and this was very helpful to me, so I'll pass it along. Stott writes, faith rests in the past, love works in the present, and hope looks to the future. In particular, hope looks forward to the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this will be a topic that Paul frequently um, brings our attention to in these letters. By the way, what Paul writes here in this opening section is a sort of preview of what he's going to discuss in greater detail in the body of the letter. So actually, faith, hope, and love, the, these are themes that we'll return to time and time again over the course of our um, time in these books. And so much so that that, that actually stands as a pretty suitable title for this sermon series, if you're inclined to title stuff. Uh, we'll call this sermon series Faith, Hope, Love. Um, it's, a, it's a great theme. And 
the point is that these are what makes believers in the Lord Jesus Christ so beautiful and such a pleasing aroma. But wait, there's more. Because in a tulip, it's, it's not just the three petals that contribute to the, the beauty. No, it's also the three matching sepals. So let's not move on from verse 3 until we notice the, the descriptors that are paired with each virtue. I stripped these out first, but now I want to come back and pick them up. It's not just faith we're talking about. It's a working faith. It's not just love. It's a laboring love. It's not just hope. It's a steadfast hope. And, and I want you to just notice how active those words are. These are, uh, as, as someone has alluded to, these are virtues with track suits on. You know, with work gloves on. What was so praiseworthy ab about the faith of the Thessalonians was that it wasn't dead, but it was alive and it was diligent. It was active. Their, their love wasn't lazy. Rather, it labored. It, it did the hard work of daily dying to self in order to serve God and serve others. You know, we have very vague notions about what it looks to love, looks like to love someone. But if you if you've been married, if you're in if you're married, if you're in any kind of meaningful relationship, you know that love cannot be lazy, or else it it's dead. No, love needs to continually labor and lay down its life for the sake of the other. And this is what was. Um, true about the Thessalonians. And then finally, their hope wasn't just a one-time thing or even a semi-regular thing that ebbed and flowed kind of with their changing circumstances. No, the, the hope that the Thessalonians possessed and exercised was constant. It was enduring. It was steadfast. And may it be so with us. You know, when our faith is working, when our love is laboring, when our hope is enduring, that's when our Christian lives are striking for their beauty. That's when they result in prayer and thanksgiving and honor and glory directed towards God. Let's look at another aspect of a flower. You'll forgive me if I, if I need to push on f from these points faster than might be uh, suitable. But let's just, you know, I, I guess I should just tell you, this sermon series, I had to make a decision. This sermon series could easily have been a year-long one because there's just so much rich material here. Or it could have been three months long. And uh, so that I wouldn't embitter you, I chose the latter. But that... <laughs> But that means that, that uh, we, we won't get into the kind of detail that we would like to get into. But I pray and I hope that, that this will be enough to kind of just tweak something in you so that you will go back over these verses and meditate on them. Let's look at a second P related to plants, flowers, but ultimately to faith. And let's consider its planting. Think about its planting. And here... We're going back in time a little bit to ask a more foundational question. And that question is, where did this church come from? 
what is the origin of the faith of these Thessalonians? And I think these are important questions because the, the proper answer is going to give us great encouragement about the genuineness of our faith, as it did to Paul about the genuineness of the faith of the Thessalonians. So it's, it's, it pays, I think, careful attention um, so that we can receive that confidence and that encouragement. And I think there are answers to this question on two different levels, okay? There's a human component to planting, and there is a divine one. Uh, this is true in terms of faith and the planting of a church, but it's also true when it comes to the flowers in our flower beds. There's a human element, right? Someone had, has planted tulip balls, bulbs and other stuff that springs up all over the place. And it wasn't us. You know, in our case, it wasn't us. It happened sometime before we arrived on the scene. It was either the Smiths or the Fays or, or someone. I don't know. But, but then when my wife and I look out the window and we see those flowers, we're just agog. We're in awestruck wonder. That's a testimony to where beautiful flowers ultimately come from. Because Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Fay, they, they did some nice work, but they can't take full credit for the beauty of those flowers. Those flowers, and the thing that gives us a sense of wonder is the fact that they are the product of a divine creator. So let's just consider both the human and divine components related to the birth of the Thessalonians' faith. Okay, on the human side, we know that this church was born as a result of the gospel ministry of Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus. You can see that right from the get-go here. This is the group that is addressing them. This is the group they would be familiar with. Although, when we um, learn about this in the book of Acts, uh, we thought that there was a guy named Silas rather than Silvanus. But it turns out those two names are variations. They can be used interchangeably. This is the same person. And we also know that in the, at that time, Luke seemed to have been part of this apostolic band. And we read about the activities of that apostolic band and their Macedonian ministry in Acts chapter 17. We learned that when they got to that city, Paul preached in the synagogues to a largely Jewish audience. That was his custom until they were given the boot, okay? It got a little hot in there, and the Jews and the leaders didn't like what they were hearing about Christ and about the resurrection. And what we don't read in Acts, but we have to assume, is that afterwards that that team had a very fruitful ministry among the Gentiles of that city. Um, meeting in homes, perhaps, or other locations. They were able to freely proclaim the gospel, and God attended it, and there was a wonderful fruit. A lot of people were converted under the ministry of that apostolic band, and they were able to labor among that people for a short amount of time until the persecution got so heavy that they were forced to leave. Okay, that's, where, that's what Acts tells us. And Acts 17 also, I think, gives us a good flavor 
of the gospel that was preached to the Thessalonians. It was, first of all, according to scripture, meaning that the word of God was opened up to these people. But it was also focused on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul and his associates were proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh and he lived and he died for sin and he was raised again to the newness of life. In addition, they would have preached that he ascended and will one day uh, come to judge the living and the dead. This Jesus is the Christ. That was the gist of their message. And uh, that he was the king. In fact, that's what got them in trouble. That Jesus is our only rescue from the wrath that is to come. That's the content of the message that was preached to the Thessalonians. And in turn, that's the message that was believed and received by that people with great joy. By many people, it appears. So... What I'm saying is that there's an undeniable human component in the planting of that church. But more fundamental is the divine explanation of the origins of faith. As the lady sang just a few minutes ago, faith owes its birth to sovereign grace. And this is certainly Paul's own testimony. You, you know his story, right? You know how he was stopped in his tracks, essentially, by Christ himself. But the apostle is, is keen to remind the Thessalonians and us that, that that's the explanation for the origin of our faith as well. It has a divine explanation. Look at verse 4. Look there with me. He writes, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And the word that's used here is the word for election. It's used frequently in the New Testament to describe the origin of our faith. An origin that reaches back all the way back into eternity past where God, according to his own purpose and will and his own good pleasure, chose to set his love and his affection on us. And if you're a Christian today, truly you are beloved by God. Okay, and you need to know that God's love for you didn't begin five or 50 years ago when you made a choice to follow him. Rather, as we'll sing in a few minutes, you have been loved before the dawn of time. We know um, some folks, and some of you, as a matter of fact, um, have like rose bushes and stuff that have been in, in your family for multiple generations. And that blows me away. You know, roses that are blooming today come from stock that is perhaps hundreds of years old and from maybe from a different part of the world. That, that blows me away. But that's nothing compared to this. If your faith has bloomed, you need to realize that that, 
that comes from a plan for you that has been set in motion from before the world was created. And in, your, in case you're, you're wondering, you know, why at Grace Baptist Church are we always on about election and predestination and God's sovereignty and salvation? Well, it's because the Bible is always on about it. Election, God's choice, is a biblical term, as you, hopefully you can see here in verse 4. It's, it's, the, it's a biblical term that's used in the text here, so we're simply just trying to be faithful to the text. And I hope that you can also see that Paul brings this up, not just you know so that we can have some intellectual stimulation here. No, Paul's bringing this up for our deep encouragement. If we were to just kind of brush past this doctrine and, and downplay it because it's controversial and it, it, it shocks our sentence, if we were to just brush past this doctrine, we would be missing out on the real encouragement that comes from knowing that our faith owes its birth to sovereign grace. Now, the, the divine part of the planting is, is so fundamental that it even explains the human element. Think about this. Why did Paul and Silas and Timothy even travel to Thessalonica in the first place? Do you remember this? This is going back in time a little bit we, that we looked at this. Do you remember that they were directed there by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit was busy like prohibiting them from going into this city and leading them into that city. And then one night Paul sees a vision of a man who's standing there, and he's probably doing this number because he's, he's saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Where, how does that happen? That, that's a vision from a sovereign God who is directing the steps of his people so that the gospel would come to his people. So, so this apostolic band obeys, and what is the result? A church is planted. Again, what else, what else could that be other than a sovereign God who is directing everything for the salvation of his elect? This is one of the reasons that Paul can write, as he does in verse 1, that the believers in Thessalonica are a church, look at what it says, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in God. They are in Christ. In other words, it's a divine planting. It's a, it's a church with deep and divine roots. And maybe you're wondering, well, how do I know if someone's elect? How do I know if I'm elect? Is it even possible to know? Well, it seems as if it is. Look at verse 4 again. Paul writes, for we know, that's quite a confident assertion, for we know that God has chosen you. Okay, so it's possible to know. Great. But how can we know? We can know based on the evidence, based on the fruit. Paul continues, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What Paul is describing here is sometimes called irresistible grace or effectual calling. 
elsewhere, Paul is able to write, those God, who God predestines, he also calls. And that term for call is, is distinct from another sort of general call. That general call happens whenever the gospel is preached and, and men, women, boys and girls are called upon to repent and believe. That's a general call that goes out to everyone. And for the most part, that kind of a call falls on deaf ears because we've got hard hearts. And let's just admit to ourselves, some of us can sit in this place and be under the sound of the gospel for years and years. And at the end of the day, it's all just words to you. Words that, that you've been able to just easily ignore. But to those who are chosen by God, the message of the gospel is not mere words. It's the power of God unto salvation. The, these words are transformative, as Pastor Matt was explaining earlier. The, they are accomplishing the very thing that God sent them out to do. And they, it's not going to return void to him without accomplishing that work. And what is that work specifically here? The salvation and the sanctification of his people. The reason that, that they're so powerful, these words, is because they are attended by the Holy Spirit. And they, and they come from and they result in full conviction. This is the work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit is effective. And this is exactly what happened almost 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica. And it's what we pray happens today in Dansville. It's what we pray happens today around the world. And if you've not yet bowed your knee to, to Christ, this is what we're praying for you today. And this is honestly what you should be praying for yourself. If, if you're discovering that all of this is just words that, that you're able to ignore, and maybe hopefully that, that scares you, why don't you pray that the Lord would attend his word with power in your life? With the whole, why don't you pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit such that you would experience full conviction and the transforming power of this message and this spirit? Pray that you would truly hear so that you might be saved. Now, why is all of this so important? Well, over the next months, we're going to be talking a lot about hope. Hope which points us to and gives us confidence about the future. But to effectively do that, our hope really has to be anchored in the past. It turns out that it is incredibly helpful to know that those who God predestines and calls will ultimately, definitely be glorified. You can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. If your faith has divine origins, then it's going to certainly have divine destination. You will make it, beloved of God. Let's turn very quickly to a third P, the pattern. And this focuses our attention on verses 6 and 7. Let me cut right to the chase here. Here's a news flash for you. Tulips look like 
other tulips. That's, uh, that's an important factor in their beauty. I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of, you know, fields of tulips in Holland, but they're breathtaking. And, whole, you know, whole fields, acres and acres of the same brilliant color. That's, of course, you know, the power of genetics, the power to produce nearly identical offspring, but variation enough that you get a wide spectrum of vibrant colors in the tulip family. In the same way, one of the beautiful dynamics that was at play in the Thessalonians' birth of faith has to do with imitation. Imitation. Do you see that in these verses, 6 and 7? It says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So the Thessalonians, this infant church, are, are following the example that they see in this apostolic band. And ultimately, this is the example of Christ, because these same apostles can say, imitate us, because we're imitating Christ. So that's exactly what these uh, new Christians did. They imitated. They, the word there is related to the word mimic. Certainly, they're not carbon copies. The Lord creates everyone individually. But in the most important things, they are following the pattern of what has come before them. And, and there's lots of things, certainly, that they, that they modeled themselves after in terms of what they saw in the apostles. But there's one particular thing that is pointed out here that they modeled, that they patterned themselves after. It says, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's, they saw the apostles doing that as well. It, they saw the apostles deliver the word in much affliction, yet with this uncanny joy in the midst of it. And they endured the same thing. You know, what, um, it's always a, it's beautiful, it's a beautiful time of year as it pertains to flowers, May in western New York, but it's also a little scary uh, when you've got all of these things blooming, you know that it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we're going to get another round of snow, right? <laughs> and uh, snow and frost would not be kind, you'd think, on flowers. And this, this is similar to what's happening in Thessalonica, that faith is blooming in these people, and instantly they're, they're getting a shower of frost. All of the animosity that was directed towards the apostles, now that the apostles had to leave, all of that animosity is going to be focused on this new congregation. But they're imitators. And so they were able to handle that persecution the way that they saw Paul and Silas and Timothy handle it, and, which is to handle it with joy, not just to endure it, to endure it, but to actually rejoice in the midst of it. What they saw in the apostles was, yes, brutal treatment, harsh realities to deal with, and yet these, these apostles were were rejoicing even for the opportunity at the thought that they would be considered worthy of suffering for the sake of Christ. 
that they were called by Christ to, in some small way, participate in the same kind of sufferings as Christ. What a joyful thing that was for the apostles. And the, the, these new believers in Thessalonica picked up on it. So when persecution came their way, there was this deep and abiding sense of joy. It's because they learned it. They, yes, of course, there's different levels of explanation. They, this is wrought by the Spirit. But on the human level, this is, this is what older, the older and wiser people in the faith that they're, that they're following have done and shown them and modeled. And this is one of the, the glories about being part of a, a church in a, in a particular location is the Lord has sovereignly aligned us and brought people into our lives who are older and wiser, who can stand as examples and models. Give us examples that we can mimic and so um, receive the crown of joy. So along those lines, if we had more time, I would tell you how thrilled I am to see the ladies engage in this adorned ministry, this Titus II type of ministry, and to see older men um, take an interest in the younger men. This is exactly what it looks like. And then notice the pattern. Do you, do you see the pattern here? Not only were the Thessalonians uh, imitators of the apostles, but look at verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So now the, the Thessalonians are able to stand as a model, as an example, for other new Christians to look to in order to know how to conduct themselves as Christians in the world. What a wonderful economy that the Lord Jesus Christ has set up in his church. And I pray that that would be true of our church, that we would be following the model of uh, older, faithful, more wiser churches, and that we would be able to have an impact on uh, churches that are coming behind us. Very quickly, please stick with me for a few more minutes. Look at number four and maybe number five together. Think about pollination, if you will. Weird thing to think about right before lunch, but uh, this focuses on uh, verses eight to the nine A. And uh, I'll switch metaphors here. Let's not talk about tulips anymore. The thing that's looming large, I think, for me and for my family are dandelions. I mean, they are, our, our field is yellow and I just cut the grass yesterday. I don't know how they do that. But anyway, my neighbors, I think, despise me because they spray and everything. And, uh, and you know what happens when those dandelions turn to seed and the wind picks them up? That's why my neighbors despise me. But Johnny, loves dandelions. That's not a weed to him. That's a beautiful flower. That's just another beautiful flower, which he delights to pick and put in a bunch and then give to me and his mom. And uh, I don't want to discourage him from that. Wonderful thing dandelions are. <laughs> but so think about dandelions. Think about, think about how they spread their seed. And I just want you to Keep that in mind as you look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. 
you see what's happening? The, the gospel is going forth because of the word and the deeds of this new congregation. Right from the get-go, they are explicitly wanting to share the gospel around their province, Macedonia, and in a province further to the south, Achaia. And not only that, but it's having impact in a wider sphere than that. It's not just their words, the word of the Lord that's sounding forth, but it's their faith, it's their work, it's their deeds that are done in God. That's gone forth. The report about all that's happening in Thessalonica has gone on before Paul so that when he arrives, for example, in a place like Corinth, he's already hearing good things about this church. And I bring that up to, to just remind us that planted churches need to be planting churches. We are to be pollinators. What, what's more beautiful than a field of tulips in Holland? Well, tulips in Canada, which they give as gifts every year. Tulips that they export all around the world. And what is more beautiful even than that? A beautiful field of tulips? It's when there's a church in every corner of the globe, among every people and language and nation and tongue. What's more beautiful than a field of tulips is when the whole earth is covered with the glory of God from sea to sea. And friends, let us work and pray towards that glorious end. What a tragic thing it would be to be content to see the birth of faith in our own lives and have no passion, no desire whatsoever to see faith birthed in others. May it never be. May, may we be actively, may the word be sounding forth from us like a trumpet blast that Pastor Drew or the Wilson boys or, or Noah plays and it just kind of lingers as it reverberates May the, may the message of the gospel and may our faith reverberate to the very ends of the earth for God's glory. And then, yeah, why not? Let's look at a fifth P, the potency. What, it, what is that thing that is being spread? What is the, the core of, I, I don't even know what's in pollen exactly, but I do know that it is quite potent. You know, not only does it result in more flowers, but it, in the meantime, it stuffs me up completely and makes my eyes water. So I don't know what it is, but it's pretty potent. And here we, we could ask ourselves, what is, what is the heart of all of this? What is, what is the thing that has the power to save? What is, what is the content, the core content that the Holy Spirit attends to produce faith in us? And we get just a hint of it here in the, in the closing couple of verses. Look at verse 10. It's all about the Son, the Son of God. One of the rare places in the New Testament where Jesus is explicitly called the Son of God, equated with deity, whom he raised from the dead, the resurrection. And not only that, but let's back up in time. Who is this Jesus? He, he's the one whose death on the cross has, has made it possible for us to not experience the wrath of God. 
that is justly coming upon us because of our sin. This is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of God. The wrath that we were under and the wrath that is to come on, on that glorious day when he returns. The, the, the potency of what we preach is that the Lord Jesus Christ is mighty to save from that wrath. And he can transform you. Look at the transformation that took place with the Thessalonians. Verse 9. This is the report. This is what everyone knows about the Thessalonians. How they turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son. That's a great description of not just conversion, but what the Christian life is all about. It's a turning it's a, it's a repentance with your whole life, turning away from the idols and the things that you're pursuing for all of your life to be so gripped by grace and the power of the gospel to turn away from that. And you don't just turn into nothing, no man's land. It's a turning from to God. And it continues. There, it, the slavery continues. At one time, we were slaves to our idols. We gave ourselves wholeheartedly, and everything about us we gave in service to that idol. But now we're called to turn and give our everything to, to enjoy a sweet slavery to our master, our God. And we're turning away from which, that which is false and dead, and we're turning to God who is living and true. That's, that's true transformation. And when that's happened in your life, you, you can know that you are saved. And what is the Christian life then? It is pouring yourself out in service. There's, I guess, two elements here to our Christian life, if you want to boil it right down. It's a waiting on. Um, so think about service and and slavery. What do they do? They wait on their master, and that's what we're called to do. But it's also our Christian life is supposed to be a waiting for, an eager expectation for the return of Christ when he comes to make all things new. Well, we're out of time, but I hope that whets your appetite for uh, next week, Lord willing. Um, I do encourage you, let me encourage you one more time to go back through and meditate on some of the wonderful details that we had to kind of just breeze over.